0: Welcome to the Management Insights Podcast Series hosted by McGraw-Hill. My name is Debbie Clare, Executive Marketing Manager for our Management Portfolio. Today's topic, Moral Hypocrisy in the Workplace. Our guest, Vanessa Hill. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, well, I'm an Associate Professor of Management at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, where I teach business and society human resource management, and leadership courses. So what got you
0: excited about this topic?
1: Well, I teach ethical leadership and also business and society. And what really interested me is why do good people do really rotten things to their direct reports? And more importantly, how do they get away with it?
0: Well, let's dig in, right? What is moral hypocrisy and
1: how is it different from hypocrisy? Okay, so when you look in the definition for hypocrisy, most of the times it's defined as the difference between what you say you believe in and what you actually do. Moral hypocrisy goes a little bit further. Batson and his colleagues, who are psychologists, have defined moral hypocrisy as a difference between what you say you believe in and what you actually do, but it's intentional because you want to have the appearance of looking moral or appearing to be moral without actually having to go through the effort of being moral. What does hypocrisy have to do
0: with bosses treating employees
1: badly? Well, hypocrisy allows the employer to save face and to treat employees badly without appearing to be a bad guy. So the employer can look like they have integrity and that they're behaving with goodwill. And then do some really rotten things and have the public and anyone else who would observe their behavior still think of them as a good player, as a good citizen. Why
0: do you think bosses feel the need to be hypocritical?
1: because they're concerned about whether or not their employees are going to cooperate. So managers have a lot of pressure to meet performance goals. They have a lot of pressure from competition. There's a lot of things that the manager has to consider in moving the organization forward, and they're concerned that the employees don't necessarily have the same priorities. So instead of engaging in a direct conflict, it's much easier to try to convince employees that really what they're being asked to do is in their own best interest as well as the organization's, even when that's not necessarily the case.
0: Now, is this behavior bad
1: or just part of business nowadays? It depends on who you ask. So there's been a tradition for a long time in business culture that how people behave in a business environment is different than how we expect them to behave personally. We compartmentalize ethics, and we save that for our family and our friends. But in the business world, we seem to expect us different types of norms, different types of behavior that allow us to behave in what we would normally consider unethical ways. Um, we're allowed to behave that way without any judgment because it's business. It's not personal, it's business.
0: So what can companies do to discourage moral hypocrisy in their managers?
1: So going back to the work of these psychologists, Batson and his colleagues, and also some additional psychologists, um, Lammers and Stapel and Galinsky, they found that there's three things in general that make it likely that the manager will engage in hypocrisy. Uh, One is differences in power. So the more powerful you are, the more likely you are to engage in hypocrisy. And the reason why is that the psychologists tell us that The more powerful you are, the more revered you are in society, the more that you have a level of prestige, the more we look up to you as a role model. And so we expect these folks to hold the moral standards, to hold us accountable and to make sure that the culture is behaving ethically. So we don't question them. We just take their word as law and we assume that they're behaving in the best interest of society. So what we find is that these folks are standard bearers when it comes to other people's behavior. They're very strict. They evaluate the behavior of other people's very strictly. But when it comes to their own behavior, well, they're a little bit more lenient. They give themselves a little bit more wiggle room. They're justified in behaving this way. Yeah, but I have a good reason for doing this. And that benefit of the doubt is not extended to the people that they're evaluating or their direct reports in the case of the employer or employee. The other factor, another factor, is going to be the level of abstraction, and that's a really fancy word for saying the more broadly you define your value, the more it's open to interpretation. So, for example, if we say one should be honest, well, what is honest? Um, We have various levels of interpretation, or one should be kind, or one should be a hard worker. These are all open to interpretation, and when there's room for interpretation, that leaves the person in power, the ability to interpret that value in a way that makes them look good, even if they're not necessarily behaving in a way that's consistent with what that value says they should do. The third factor that contributes to this is going to be dehumanization, So the idea that the other person is not considered to be as worthy or as human as we are. So does that mean that the employer thinks of the other person as inhuman? No. But what it means is that they consider themselves to be more sophisticated. They consider themselves to be elevated to a point where those same rules don't necessarily apply to them or shouldn't apply to them like they apply to the people who report to them. So those three factors, um, is the value defined concretely? Are you in a position of power? And do we dehumanize the other person? Those three things, according to these psychologists, tend to predict higher instances of hypocrisy in the workplace.
0: Now, do you have examples
1: that you like to use with your students? So sure. So a few examples I can think of is Amazon, for example, a well-respected company, but has had a lot of labor issues. And one of the things that we find in our newspaper reporting on Amazon is that it has an internal culture that encourages people to become Amabots. Amabots? Amabots, so if you are really a hard worker, you work like a machine, you're one with the performance monitoring systems, you are a good Amazonian, you are an Amabot. So we see there that there's a bit of dehumanization. So this aspiration to become an Amabot supports working very long hours, supports uh, an imbalance of work-life concerns and supports some of the practices that Amazon has been criticized for, such as not allowing the employees in the warehouse level to have breaks when they're supposed to, uh, not paying the employees uh, a reasonable rate uh, like they would like to be paid or like they think is fair. So if they're Amabots, they're not people, and if they're not people— then we probably aren't as, un- aren't as uncomfortable doing things that may be considered unfair in other circumstances. The other example is Whole Foods. Now, Whole Foods is a warm and fuzzy organization. Under their previous CEO, John Mackey, uh, he was known for discouraging worker representation he actively fought against workers seeking representation beyond Whole Foods. And what he would say is, oh, at Whole Foods, it's not so much that I'm anti-union. I'm beyond unions. So he would argue that there's no reason for any kind of uh, external representation for employees because he had their best interests at heart. And there's no reason for them to seek to organize, to even out the power relationship because, hey, they could advocate for themselves individually. And that often wasn't the case. So that was an example of Whole Foods trying to persuade the employee that there was no need for them to go outside the organization, that they would have their concerns addressed in a fair way. And I'm not saying that Whole Foods didn't do that. But What's important here, what we look at, is why he tried so hard to uh, dissuade people from exploring whether or not representation would be good for them. So those are two examples of how employers have created this story or this narrative about we're in it all together. What's good for me as the employer is good for you. And you shouldn't question it. And if you do, then you're not a bad citizen. Then you're a bad citizen. So you're not a good amobot, and you're not a good team member. Now, do you have any closing comments for your peers? Uh, the only closing comments that I have is now we have an idea of those factors that make us vulnerable to engaging in hypocrisy. Maybe we spend a little time reflecting and making sure that we're not falling prey to those. So do we try to make qualifiers or set up qualifying statements for our behaviors saying that, well, that doesn't really apply to us, Um, that the employers need that. The employees need that guidance, but we don't need it so much. Do we think of our employees on par with us? Do we think of them as having the same level of needs that we do? Do we put ourselves in their situation? Would we want to be treated that way? And the other one is being very specific about what being a good citizen is about. So, not just having a broad value statement like it's good to be honest, but what does being honest mean? so that people can actually hold you accountable to living up to that standard.
0: Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today for your perspective, experience, and advice. To our listeners, check back for future topics and spread the word to your colleagues about our podcast series. Why? Because learning changes everything.